The talk tonight is on the light. And I could go further and say it's on the light in the Dharma. And I could go further and say it's on delight in the delectable and delicious Dharma. (laughs) So I want to explore this evening the quality of delight, how it can emerge and function in our practice. Some of the challenges to delight emerging. Some of the ways that we can uh, focus on cultivating delight as well. But at first I want to situate the theme of delight in the uh, context that we've been developing the last two evenings, really the last three evenings. We brought in the framework of dependent arising or dependent origination with uh, John's talk on Saturday. And we've been returning to that really as a core framework, this model, the fruit it said of the enlightenment of the Buddha on the evening of his enlightenment, and perhaps the most detailed um, analysis, particularly of the roots of suffering that we have. And we've been able to see that as a circle, as a cycle, whereby our, basically our bad habits get repeated. Dependent arising could be said to be a model of our bad habits. And the circular aspect is important because it just keeps going round. And in fact, the roots of the term samsara have to do with the concept of a circle and going round. And it's said that the Buddha actually drew a circle in the ground, you know, like in the, in the dirt for the um, monks to show the nature of the model, to show the nature of, of that teaching. And we, we know that uh, perhaps at the core of that teaching is the movement from feeling tone or Vedana, the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, to wanting or craving. And really, we have to understand as well that the opposite is also implied, some kind of uh, desire to push away or aversion. And from there, the movement to grasping or kind of compulsive pushing away. I believe the Buddha once said that the whole of the spiritual path occurs in the interval between feeling tone and grasping. It's a strong statement. And so what we were exploring this morning in bringing a little more precision into looking at feeling tone is really crucial. That when we're not aware 
of pleasant and unpleasant or neutral, we tend to follow it more automatically, meaning that pleasant experience leads to wanting to grasping, unpleasant experience leads to um, desire to push away, an actual pushing away, and neutral feeling tone leads to generally being deluded, not knowing, not paying attention. We also have this second model. And as um, Heather explained, the model of dependent arising is really a model of of suffering and the roots of suffering, paralleling the first and second uh, truths. And the model of what we've been calling transcendental dependent arising or liberative dependent arising uh, is a model of how freedom emerges and gets strengthened. It's really of how our deeper nature, our, we, can, we might say, our radiant being, our s- sense of um, love, the qualities of love, wisdom, compassion, mindfulness, concentration, and so forth, emerge. And we can remember how the turning point is um, a different attitude to suffering. That in the uh, model of dependent arising, we keep going around in circles. Suffering is engendered by our um, unconscious patterns, our habits. We're actually not even very aware that they're suffering. When we are engaged in practice, we take suffering really as a branching off place rather than simply suffering being part of the cycle that we just keep repeating. We become conscious that there's suffering. We become conscious that we are caught in a way. And we take that as a starting point for practice. Many of us have come to practice to find peace and wisdom. I remember when I first started practice, I was interested in wisdom and bliss. (laughs) And I heard these talks on suffering. I said, well, maybe that's for the other people. A few retreats later, I knew it was for me. (laughs) Um, But there's a way that when we really um, notice our suffering and we are aware of practice, something shifts. And there may still be suffering, but we're moving in a different trajectory. And it's really that... uh, um, very hopeful and, um, as it were, uplifting quality of our practice. Suffering, instead of being fate, becomes workable. And not only workable, but transformable. And so in the model, suffering is the first 
step in this new model of transcendental dependent arising. And the very uh, possibility of working in a different way with suffering tends to engender faith, as Mary Grace was exploring. That there is some confidence that we're not locked in to our habits, to our patterns. There's some confidence, some faith, some trust that another way is possible. That another way of living, another way of uh, being is possible. And this engenders a certain amount of faith, a certain amount of uh, hope, of uh, aspiration. As we get more grounded in faith and as we practice more, that faith tends to lead to what is called delight. It's not just a faith or a confidence, but as we are more settled in practice and as we practice more, it's actually sweet. It's delightful. There is uh, not just confidence, but a um, good taste, a kind of um, contentment and joy. The term that is in the text is pomoja. And it's translated in various ways as delight or joy or contentment or, or gladness. And it really is this um, sense of there is another way to live, another way to move. There is the possibility of practice. And I am delighted. I am just delighted. I can, in a sense, relax. So some, I'll explore some of the qualities of delight, but one of them is that of relaxation. I can, in a sense, uh, let down my guard some. I can let my body relax. And a kind of delight comes that there's another way. In the explication of, of delight, <clears throat> there are a number of different aspects of delight, and I want to explore them. Uh, one major way that we experience delight is <clears throat> in a kind of reflection that can surface at times, <clears throat> or that we can deliberately cultivate, that we are uh, living in a way which brings about a certain contentment, joy, or delight. And so there can be a kind of reflection that occurs spontaneously or sometimes, again, uh, more deliberately, that it might be something like what we experience in regard to practice, as I've heard. Um, often in the questions and sometimes um, in listening to people, that people say, I am delighted to be here. It's hard at times. It is um, challenging at times. 
Sometimes it feels dry. Sometimes I feel lost. But so many of us feel, I'm also delighted to be here. This is the best way I could spend a month. When do I sign up again? Future thought, back to the breath. <laughs> you know, one, of the, one of the main vocations on retreats is thinking about the next retreats. <laughs> um, but there can be that quality of delight in the practice, no matter what's happening. I had a very interesting experience about 10 years ago. I was doing this retreat for two months. And somehow about five or six weeks into the retreat, something like that quality of delight became more pervasive. And I remember very clearly uh, one morning, I hadn't slept well. I was feeling like I might be getting sick. My concentration was shot. I was irritated, and I felt so much joy. (laughs) Because I was, I didn't want to be anywhere else. And in a way, I was taking refuge in the whole framework of practice. And that was very, very freeing to experience that and have that be sustained for a while. The thought did come to me. This is a very good perspective to have. <laughs> you know how to how to stabilize that more. But it was a very strong experience, and I'm sure that that's been there for many or, or most of us at times. There was a similar, maybe a mo- little more dramatically expressed way of. Um, mm, articulating that sense of delight in practice, there was a American monk who was practicing uh, in a cave off the coast of Thailand, I believe in the 60s and 70s. And he eventually died in the cave. And he had certain uh, paintings uh, that were uh, in the cave. And I, I, and I saw a reproduction of it, which was at the uh, monastery of Swan Mok in um, Uh, southern Thailand, uh, the monastery uh, that used to be guided by uh, Buddha Dasa uh, Bhikkhu. And there was this uh, painting, and it showed this kind of laughing, jolly person. And the phrase that this person was saying was, oh joy, that there is no true happiness in this world. And I, I believe he was getting at something quite similar, that there was, as it were, a deeper or broader joy that contains everything, a deeper delight that contains everything. And I think he wasn't talking about so much a deep happiness, but more the getting the happiness from getting what I want, or this going this way or that way. That there, that there is a deeper joy that can be there no matter what happens, that can be um, catalyzed by um, reflection on our practice or come, again, quite spontaneously, as it, as it often does, 
I don't want to be anywhere else. I don't want to be doing anything other than this transformative practice. There can also be the qualities of delight from our practice that can be there when we simply are experiencing without the hindrances. A delight spontaneously comes, for there can be a delight in the body and mind and heart when there is more concentration, when we really uh, settle, you know, and the um, concentration kicks in. You know, from a scientific perspective, we know the endorphins are kicking in, little bliss capsules circulating through the body. <laughs> and uh, there can be a sense of delight. There can be a sense of delight from um, noticing that we, we're seeing the world with fresh eyes. You know, like in that phrase in the poetry, uh, or I guess in some of the words of William Blake, the poet, where he talked about if we cleanse the doors of perception, we see everything as it is, infinite. And we experience the delight of cleansing the doors of perception at times. There's a kind of delight in our system. I was thinking we also may, over the course of our lives, uh, delight in the whole journey. Uh, and I, w- I was particularly thinking of a, a mentor of mine uh, who, who's pretty well known, Houston Smith, who's been an important person in my life. He's a well known um, uh, scholar and teacher of um, the world religions. And he's 90 years old now. He has so much delight. His body isn't doing very well. His mind and his heart are so much contained with delight. And it's very, very powerful and inspiring for me because it tells me that he is affirming the entire life course. And that life course includes old age and the body not doing so well. And I get a sense of a resting and a delight of the whole process the whole movement. Another important sense of, de- of the delight that's being pointed to is what we might call a delight in integrity. And it's interesting as we explore these, and I'll, I'll talk more about these later, I think for Westerners, we don't always have such ready access to delight. Many of us, including uh, me, have really been, have been conditioned to focus on the problems, on the issues, on the unresolved stuff, on what's difficult. And sometimes it's hard for us to feel that delight. I, I think that, you know, that came up in the morning in one of the questions this morning with the question about um, feeling the quiet and the silence, and then issues of worthiness come up, you know? And so some of these qualities of delight may take a special intention to invite, to, to feel, to see how they're present. 
but there is a delight in our integrity. The Buddha called it the bliss of blamelessness, meaning that as we as we practice, as we practice the different aspects of a path that include in Buddhist tradition include these three core trainings of training in ethics, or I would say, I like you know, the word better, training in integrity, training in meditation, training in wisdom. As we move more in that way, there becomes, there, there comes a kind of um, greater resting in integrity, greater resting in being ethical. And we know that in some way. We know that in a, in a deep way. We, for, for some, it is to be, to let aside habits or patterns that were not so skillful in our action, in our speech, in our relation to self, in our relation to others. And we come to have that quality of um, ethics or virtue or integrity simply be more an expression of our being. And we know in a way, I won't at least deliberately harm others. I may find that I'm sometimes unconscious about some things and I may act in ways that later I would um, question, but we may cease to intentionally harm as an expression of our ethics. And we may take that for granted, but I think what's being invited here is to reflect that that's actually very beautiful and significant, and it is a a source of delight when we tune into that. It really can be a um, support for our practice and a kind of growing expression of our deeper nature, of our deeper qualities, of wisdom and compassion and mindfulness and so forth. Some of that quality of bliss, I think, comes from the simplicity of being ethical. It's much more complicated to be unethical. You know, if we don't follow wise speech, to track what you said to what person over and over again, it's exhausting. <laughs> it's actually very exhausting to be unethical. And part of that, that bliss of blamelessness, that delight, I think, comes from the simplicity of our being. It comes from just a simple resting in virtue. Uh, the philosopher Kierkegaard once said, purity of heart is to will one thing. There's a kind of uh, delight that comes from the simplicity of I will not harm, I will cultivate warmth, generosity, and so forth as best I can, knowing that it's a practice, not a stipulation. The Buddha talked about this bliss of blamelessness in this way. He said, what is the bliss of blamelessness There is the case where a disciple of the noble ones is endowed with blameless bodily karma, blameless verbal karma, blameless mental karma, 
when that practitioner thinks, I am endowed with blameless bodily karma, blameless verbal karma, blameless mental karma, that person experiences bliss and joy. This is called the bliss of blamelessness. And he compares it to other kinds of bliss and says, compared to the bliss of blamelessness, all the others are only worth one-sixteenth of one-sixteenth <laughs> of the bliss of blamelessness. We, we never get an unpacking of the mathematics of that, but <laughs> I think it's maybe more a metaphor <laughs> for it being really important and, and beautiful and powerful. And I think we can experience that sense of integrity here. But it's, again, something we may need to tune into to reflect, maybe at the beginning of a day or beginning of a sitting, the fact that we're living in integrity, that we're living in care, and it expresses itself in very, very simple ways. And there's a delight that can be there if we tune into it. That's what's being invited here as a support for our practice. It's interesting, I was... um, Two nights ago, I had a dream uh, about um, this life of integrity and the essence of, of morality. Uh, in the dream, uh, Gil and I were uh, conversing with uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. about the nature of moral action. It was really sweet. <laughs> yes. So we, you know, we sometimes work after hours to. <laughs> You know, to support the retreat. <laughs> but in, in the dream, we were all agreeing that the essence of moral action was to be discerning on what thoughts to follow and what thoughts not to follow. Very, very simple simplicity, but also when we do that, when we ask that question, there comes to be more of that delight in, in um, integrity. So there are these other qualities that are really related to delight or they think come into this mix as we um, can connect more with the, uh, the joy, the kind of, it's kind of the luminous quality of ourselves coming into uh, our being. And I like kind of the um, uh, multiple connotations of delight, which I don't think are in Pamoja, but when we translate it, it's nice that delight has this link with light, that there's, there, these are luminous aspects coming into our being as we move on the path of practice. So there can be, as I mentioned, there can be a sense of relaxation. The body relaxes, and, and there's a sense of delight in relaxing and our certain of our um, mental and physical and emotional habits not needing to be followed. We relax deeply. There's a kind of delight in that. There can be a, a, a way that we um, touch some of the qualities of mystery or awe or wonder as we practice. I think this is also quite close to delight, that we may be there with the lizard or with the 
rain or with the turkeys, definitely with the turkeys, <laughs> and have this sense of wonder and awe. I always, when I see the turkeys nowadays, I always think of Sylvia and what she says. Uh, she says, what was God thinking? <laughs> I think that's probably unfair, but But the, there is something mysterious. And <laughs> <laughs> so we may have other, uh, other ways that I think, and also just in so many ways, just not, it could be being with the natural world. It could be just being with this mysterious process of opening and things surfacing in our experience. It's mysterious, you know? And I think as we practice more, there can be a sense of delight in just the unfolding of experience, the mystery. You know, I think in my earlier retreats, I had a certain agenda for what should happen. By this time in the retreat, many of your agendas are completely shot. (laughs) Which lets you open to the mystery, sometimes against your wishes. So there is that sense of opening to mystery, to awe that we can feel often. Um, There can be more and more that sense just in delighting in being alive that can be there in in these retreats, that can be be linked with a kind of freshness or, or settling or opening. can be a sense of gratitude. I think gratitude is in this family that's connected with delight. And I'll talk a little later about cultivating gratitude as a practice. So there's a natural opening to these aspects of delight. And it's wonderful in itself, but it also, I think, plays a very, very crucial role in the whole process of transformation that I want to explore for a little while, that there's a way in which our practice touches two broad areas. On the one hand, we open to challenging areas, to difficult areas, to areas that may involve suffering, we sometimes have to hang out with those old patterns that are surfacing, be with them, note them, watch them. And that's challenging and sometimes tiring. And it can last for a while. I think it was uh, Mary Grace who spoke about opening to the dark messengers, you know, that the Buddha talked about the four messengers or that we our own dark messengers. We definitely open to that. And that's a significant part of our practice. And yet to really sustain our practice, I think we have to equally open up to delight and to these qualities of delight, joy, beauty, 
really the, the Brahma Vihara that we're practicing really are in that family. Metta, compassion, mudita, or sympathetic joy and equanimity. That there's a way in which we really need also <clears throat> to ground in these qualities of delight. And that's important for a number of reasons. Um, I think in the long run, we need a certain kind of, of balance to really go into our experience deeply. A lot of that balance can come from these qualities of delight, beauty, metta, joy, and so forth. And they can also um, be very, very helpful. There are times when suffering arises and we try to be mindful and the mindfulness is overwhelmed. It's too much. And we basically get taken away by the pattern. I think it's quite important to be discerning at that moment and know that that's happening. Sometimes we can think I'm really being mindful, but we're actually being swept away and we're not very mindful. And we may be uh, caught up without much awareness in the pattern. It's good to be discerning at that point. And if the difficult pattern is too much or overwhelming, we have to make a careful discernment about that. It can be very wise to shift the energy. You know, we sometimes talk about an antidote that's useful. Metta is a beautiful antidote, originally in the teachings of the Buddha, an antidote to fear. And so at certain moments, when there's distress and we feel like we're getting taken away, going to one of these qualities of joy or delight or metta is skillful. And it can be a time to um, deliberately cultivate them and to, to work in that way. I had an interesting experience of this kind um, about, uh, about 20 years ago, I did a three-month retreat that was kind of a solo retreat at Gaia House in England. And uh, I was living just in a little room, kind of on the side of the uh, Gaia House, which was is the, actually, those of you who know Gaia House, it's the old Gaia House. And Gaia House has since moved, so. But there, was, um, there were a few rooms that were somewhat separate from this old, big old house that was where most of the people lived, like a, I guess an old kind of, basically an old rundown mansion. <laughs> and uh, so I was, I was living in this uh, cottage. It was really a room in a, it was basically like an outbuilding with three rooms. And uh, it was about maybe, it was probably about the size, maybe a little smaller of our, of our single rooms here. And um, I would meet with the teachers about every four days, but I was pretty much practicing on my own. In the first two or three weeks, when there was a retreat happening there, which there were periodically most of the time, I went and ate my meals with the other retreatants. And at a certain point, I decided I wanted to have more solitude. And the simple step was to bring my food um, into my, my room and eat it there. 
when I started doing that, I was fairly concentrated. I started feeling um, a lot of nausea. My body started feeling very, very tight and heavy. And it went on for a few days. And I thought that probably what had happened was that I had uh, crossed some boundary, some internal boundary of where I felt comfortable with solitude. You know, I mean, there was a fair amount of solitude already, not speaking to people, living in a room, but it was as if the meals and having them with other people kept some kind of connection that I was then severing. And something, that was my sense of it, that there was some kind of, uh, you know, this heaviness of body, nausea, still very concentrated, but just... And so I um, um, met, after about two or three days of this, I met with Christopher Titmus, and he um, asked me some things, got a sense of what I was experiencing, and he said, look at the model of the seven factors of awakening and tell me what's missing. Seven factors of awakening is a model most of you are familiar with of mindfulness and uh, three energizing factors of inquiry or investigation and uh, energy or effort and joy or rapture and uh, tranquility, concentration and equanimity. And I looked at those and I said, joy is missing. (laughs) They said, I agree. And so he asked me, um, what would you do to kind of cultivate that quality of joy? I said, I know exactly what I'll do. I'll um, go back to eating my meals with the other people, and I'll just walk around looking at spider webs and, and uh, birds and so forth. And so he said, um, sounds good. And so within a short time, I was feeling uh, that kind of joy and delight again. And I was kind of proud, oh, this meditation really works, you know. And um, I was really feeling good about that. And I'm saying that partly as an example of how there actually can be an antidote to the, um, the whatever that difficult difficult feelings were. Um, But then about four days later, I had another interview with uh, Christina Feldman, and you know, I was kind of proud. Oh, yeah, I'm really feeling great now. What? Joyful. Yeah, just really feel great. <laughs> and of course, you pretty much know what she would say. She said, what about the fear? Or what about all that stuff in your body? What about that? And I pretty much, I don't, I don't remember what I said. I probably said something like, that's in the past, or (laughs) something like that. And um, she just said, what about that fear? I said, oh, yeah. I said, maybe it might be good to look at that. I said, no, you're probably right. And I said, I will, and I pretty much know how to get there. I'll just, you know, cut that. (laughs) I'll cut that connection with um, with eating, you know. And and we were meeting, I think, on a Thursday, and I said, I'll do that. And no, I think we were meeting on Friday morning. Uh, And I said, I'll do that, but um, not for lunch. (laughs) I said, dinner sounds better. And so um, 
so I kind of rehearsed what I would do. You know, I imagined that I would get my meal, I would sit down to eat the evening meal by myself, and there'd be the, these waves of nausea and heaviness would, would come at me, and I prepared what to do when they would be coming. And I was going to be a warrior, I had some spiritual books, I read you know, about these great heroic spiritual practitioners and got inspired and took some walks and really gave myself pep talks and so forth. And, and then the, kind of the moment of truth came and I went and got my meal and I sat down and I, you know, ready, I'll, I'm prepared to do it. And, and I sat um, and nothing happened. And nothing happened that evening and nothing happened for the rest of the retreat. Quite interesting, huh? It's like sometimes when I, in some ways, showed that I wasn't afraid of the fear, something left, or I wasn't afraid of the demon. Sometimes works like that. You know? Sometimes works like that. You may have built up something in our minds, and it may be big, and when we actually face it, it's hardly there. And then other times we face it, and it is there. Just to... <laughs> <laughs> Just to be clear, but, but, <laughs> but sometimes it's like that. You know, and I've, I, but I've seen that, that way that uh, having access to, to delight or joy or gratitude or appreciation can be so important for working with what's difficult. You know, I've worked a lot with Joanna Macy and sometimes in, in groups where there are conflicts or difficulties. And um, I was with uh, Joanna Macy about seven or eight years ago, and there was an organization that was really in trouble, and people were tense with each other, and people were stopping talking with each other, and it was really sad because it was kind of a spiritually based organization, you know, and people were feeling, gosh, if we can't do it, you know, what hope is there? So it was a lot of despair, and people didn't have a way of going into the difficulties in that context. and. Uh, so Joanna came and facilitated something that let us in time go into what was difficult. But the first thing she did was, before doing that, she had people tap into appreciation and gratitude for the organization and really stay with that. And there's something about that way that, that of going back and forth sometimes between the quality of delight or joy and what's difficult, and, and really furthering that sense of delight can be such a resource and support for our practice. So how do we, how do we cultivate that sense of delight? We can work with reflections, you know, to tune in on, on some of the uh, qualities of our practice, such as I was mentioning. We can do it at the beginning of a sitting for five minutes and reflect on the appreciation or delight or gratitude or whatever your, your flavor is in relation to our practice. We can do the same thing with that sense of integrity, to really tune in and feel. I can feel my integrity and I can feel how there's some delight, rather than taking these things for granted. So what's really being suggested is there might be a way 
to deliberately invoke the light, to let it be stronger, as it were, and brighter in one's mind. We can cultivate gratitude as a practice, a beautiful practice that is very, very simple, some very simple ways to do it. We sometimes talk about gratitude as the fifth Brahma-vihara because it's a beautiful quality of the heart and yet it wasn't mentioned as a special quality. And um, gratitude has been a really important part of my practice for about five or six years. You can do it very simply, the first five or ten minutes of a sitting. Just invite reflection on what you're grateful for. Could be the big things in your life. Could be the small things of the day. I'm grateful I rested well. I'm grateful um, I liked the meal. <laughs> you know, I'm grateful for being here. Or it could be the larger qualities of one's life. I'm grateful for this or for that. And um, it really is a powerful quality that for me, and maybe for many of us, goes against the tendency to focus on problems, to focus on what's wrong or difficult or the so-called half-empty glass, that a regular practice of gratitude really starts to shift our minds and bring in more of that delight. It can really work in that way. You know, we can also invite delight sometimes in relationship to the non-human world, to really be in a fresh way with the animals and the trees and the sky and so forth. And I know that for many of us that's, that's actually rich and happening. And to do so within the framework of practice. And it might, can be helpful maybe just to start your walking meditation and take five minutes and, and be with the natural world or just be with a flower and bring that quality of delight in you know, as part of the practice. That quality of delight can also be, be used in inviting relaxation. We can, perhaps at the beginning of a practice, and this is especially important for those doing concentration practices, that, that sense of, can I just relax? Let me just relax. And not so much in a superficial way, but in a deep way. Can I re- just relax? Or we might say, let me sink into the mystery as I practice. Let me be with the mystery. Or whatever language works for you. You know, we can have uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's half smile on our face. You know, delight has muscular correlates. You know, do a half smile as you sit. It's way harder to be grim and focus on the problems with a half smile. You can experiment with that. And yet, for many of us, I think it's actually hard sometimes to access delight, that we sometimes need this conscious work. I know for myself, working with gratitude, really, really helpful, that that we have um, ways that that delight is hard for us to access. You know, we may be overly concerned about uh, doing it right, or we may be overly serious, you know. I remember in my first retreats, I would have people come up to me at the end of the retreat and says, are you always so serious? You know? And so later, 
this is kind of an aside. Later, um, as I was doing more teaching, I decided it was good for me to pursue um, advanced training, so I enrolled in the Clown School of San Francisco <laughs> and did a six-month performance class that ended up with uh, performances in the Mission District of San Francisco with my clown troupe. And actually, um, I didn't mention humor yet, which I should have, but humor is a beautiful way to bring about delight. You know, and it's very important for our practice, you know, that um, having that sense of humor. And the approach to clown work that my clown teacher, Christina Lewis, um, offered was really very similar to this sense of having the delight and the lightness be able to be a support for going into challenging territory. You know? Because we, we didn't use the clown work uh, in the way it's often in the American circuses of kind of just being slapstick or buffoon. It was more like European mime or that sense of like Charlie Chaplin or like uh, um, basically grounded in compassion. And we would, you know, we would um, basically take edgy material for us and turn it into a clown skit. And the lightness really helped. So we basically would, you know, take our difficult, some difficult edgy quality and basically exaggerate it and publicize it. Kind of similar to if we had broadcasters from everyone's mind here. Be very similar to a clown skit. <laughs> okay. Okay, I, I hope that was wise speech. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so we we can have that quality of seriousness, or we can certainly have the the quality of judgment. You know, of self judgment can be a real constriction. Way that our delight gets constricted, and it's very common in our culture. You know, that we judge ourselves, we judge others. It's very. Um, can be very powerful and it can really surface on these kind of retreats. I know it has for myself and it's actually been a very crucial part of my own practice to work with that kind of judgment, self-judgment especially, but also judgment of others. And it's um, been really um, useful to work with a lot of tools. In fact, I have found myself working a lot with this in my own practice and starting to teach about um, working with, with the judgmental mind and have been actually having monthly groups on it for about seven years. And we did a five-day retreat on the theme last fall. But it's what I have found is that it really, very similar to the general transformative work, we need this combination of mindfulness and going into the judgment, seeing them, noticing the patterns, going more deeply, getting a sense of the roots combined with what we might call the more um, warm qualities or the qualities of metta and compassion and joy. And I found that we almost need, in going deeply into judgments, have to have both going at the same time, which I think is generally true for our practice, to have this quality of the heart uh, and uh, paralleling the, the mindfulness. And ultimately, I think they get integrated. That mature mindfulness is deeply heartfelt. Mature metta has a lot of insight. That's what I, I believe. So we can work with those qualities of judgment. We can um, 
open to them, <clears throat> work with metta, and that, that can really help the qualities of delight and joy come forth more. And the delight and joy can actually be an antidote, can give us some sense of being in a different, different way as we, as we practice. <clears throat> All of these qualities that are explored in transcendental dependent arising are qualities of our deeper being. There are qualities, we might say, of, of increasing spiritual maturity, increasing freedom, quality of faith, quality of delight, which leads to a kind of deeper joy. And they start to surface more because they're really who we are. They're expressions of who we are. Famous uh, passage uh, in the teachings of the Buddha, luminous, is this mind and heart brightly shining, but colored by the attachments that visit it. These, those who do not practice, do not really understand, and so they do not cultivate the mind and heart. Luminous are this mind and heart brightly shining, free of the attachments that visit visit them. This the noble follower of the way really understands. So for them, there is cultivation of the mind and heart, that luminous quality that we touch at different times, that we open up to, that we come increasingly to find delight in. It's really ultimately the delight in most deeply being ourselves, most deeply knowing our own vocation. There's a delight in that. It's like in the, in so many of the texts of the uh, discourses of the Buddha, they often end by saying, this person, this practitioner, did what had to be done. You know, as, as that quality of knowing who we are, of transforming our challenging aspects, as we engage in that practice, there's this great peace and delight and resting in doing what we know has to be done, of coming to those depths. We can cultivate that delight, and that delight is ultimately a kind of a um, intimation of our deeper being, of our deeper luminosity, that we open to and cultivate in our practice, using all these wonderful, skillful means that we've been given. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it delightful? We have all these practices. It's so amazing. You know, all these um, opportunities to, okay, just make this adjustment or this adjustment or do this or do that. And we can really follow that vocation and trust in it more and more. And let that quality of delight deepen and deepen and deepen as we practice. So let's just sit now for a little while.
thank you so much for your attention. And I can't resist this, but I want to wish you a delightful evening. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.